Romans, the fifth chapter, as we continue our time in the book of Romans, our series in this wondrous book. And we come to Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, reading through verse 11. May the Lord himself bless the reading and exposition of his word. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. This is the word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If I were to ask you, what do you know about the love of God, I think that would be a difficult question to answer. You could talk about the sovereignty of his love. You could talk about the fullness of his love, the comprehensiveness of his love, the speciality of his love for his own people and the salvation of his elect. There is much that we could say, but surely all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ would find that our hearts so are overwhelmed with the concept of God's love that it is virtually indescribable, is it not? What do we know about the love of God for us, his people? Well, we can only know God if he chooses to reveal himself, and he has done so, and he has done so through his word and also through the deeds of redemptive history. The grandest display of his character is in the cross, whether his justice, his grace, his mercy, or, of course, his almighty love for us, his people. Would you know, would you see something of the depths of God's love? Well, here is where you find it. Christ's death on the cross for us. So what do we know about the love of God? And as we see Paul's answer to that question, remember that his purpose is to show that his people are secure and well-founded in our assurance because of what he has done for us sinners through Jesus Christ, our Lord Now, as we work our way through this text, and we're going to look at it somewhat comprehensively and broadly, and then I may go back next week and take one section of it and focus more particularly. The first thing we see about God's incomprehensible and wondrous love is displayed in the cross is that the love that God has for us is love for the ungodly. Someone may say, well, did I hear that right? Yes, that's what the text says. For the ungodly, the ungodly, verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Those described, as you will recall, in chapter 3 in this way, beginning in verse 10 of Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the ones that God has loved. Fallen in Adam, unlike God in our moral and ethical character, averse to him, truly hating him, the scriptures teach, God has loved in Christ the ungodly. Do you see yourself as lost and condemned apart from the cross? And do you see, if you see that, what wondrous love is this that has come to us through the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Let it sink in. Yes, He loves the ungodly. The image of God is horribly defaced in the fall. We have become ungodly. We have spurned his love. We have rejected his voice. Openly and covertly we have attacked him. And these are the people that he loves. Now this is a marvel, an absolute marvel. The marvel of God's love. You mean... When I was detestable, God loved me, yes. You mean when I hated him, God loved me, yes. You mean when I was averse to all that was good and right and godly, God loved me, yes. When I was under his wrath, he loved me, yes, yes. And when you were powerless and without any strength whatsoever, God loved you. The picture of this that I most appreciate actually is in Ezekiel. I won't turn to it on a Sunday evening, but Ezekiel 16 in which God comes to Israel in this pool of blood and takes this Israel to himself and cleans and cleanses and pardons and forgives rebellious Israel. God loves the ungodly, and it is an antecedent love. That is to say, before we had any love for him, he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And now, if you will see your need, you will understand the sacrifice and its greatness, and that the love of God is found here preeminently. Then you will see that, as someone has said, the gospel is the last thing in the world to be taken for granted. (laughs) Then you will see that when you were helpless and a rebel, yet Christ died for me. So what can convince us of the love of God? More than coming to this text and understanding the character of those for whom he died, ungodly, without strength, total inability, nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Do you understand this? While we were still weak, and that of course means helpless, we had no strength whatsoever, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But then the second thing I think we see in the text about this love is that the love that God has for us is an unconstrained love. An unconstrained love. Now, I mentioned this briefly, but it's of vital importance. Paul is very motivated to show that, uh, that this love that he has for us is unconstrained. That is to say, it's not determined by anything within us as if we were worthy. Look at the language of the text. He speaks of our being helpless, our being ungodly, our being sinners, and our being enemies. We were corrupt, we were cursed, we were stone dead in sin. 
There was no motivation outside of God himself. When you ask the question, why does God love me? The answer is God loves me. It's not because there was anything within me that would have attracted or drawn his love. I remember a number of years ago, a very, very well-known evangelical leader, everyone hears him on the radio, would talk about the atonement in this way. He would speak of all of us as as pearls. We were once uh, a string of pearls. But then the fall took place and the, the string was cut and all of the pearls had fallen on the ground. And what the atonement really was, was Christ coming and taking up the pearls again and restringing the pearls. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be farther from what the Bible teaches about the atonement of Christ. Let me say it plainly. Christ did not die for us because we were worthy. Christ did not die for us because we were lovely. Christ did not die for us because somehow there was something within us that would appeal to him. We were at enmity with God. We were helpless, ungodly sinners. His love for us is totally unconstrained. That's marvelous, isn't it? Nothing within us, totally unconstrained. But then there's a third thing you see about the love of God in this text, and that is that the love that God has for us is timely love, timely love. We read in verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The time of our need was the time of our helplessness. As John Murray put it, the time of man's extremity was the time of God's efficacious work and the accomplishments wrought by the death of his son. But I think when he uses this kind of language and he speaks of the right time in which Christ died for us, this connects also with Galatians 4.4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under law. And I think if we will take a moment to understand Paul's concept of time, it will add a depth dimension to our understanding of what he means here. When Paul speaks of time, he means that Christ came to consummate God's work through history. That the cross and resurrection consummates the ages and inaugurates the age to come. That Christ's coming was fulfillment. It is the time embracing the gospel events and the proclamation of the gospel until the return of Christ. That's what Paul means when he says in Ephesians, redeem the time for the days are evil. He's talking about the time, the time in which the gospel is to be proclaimed between the cross and the ascension of Christ. So this implies the wisdom, the plan, the purpose of God to redeem us. It means that all the purpose of God, all of the plan of God to redeem comes to a focal point in the cross and that like a cup that is full, the fullness of time has arrived in Christ our Lord. Who can fail to be filled with wonder when we pause and contemplate that our redemption was planned by God, that it was no accident, that it is according to purpose, and that your life is saved by the cross according to an eternal plan as the Father set his love on you to be displayed in redeeming you from your sins on the cross. That means, people of God, there has never been a time in which you were not contemplated in that plan. There was never a time in which the Father had not set His love upon you. You are loved with an everlasting love. 
But then if we can go on, fourthly, the love that we find in this text is unheard of love. Unheard of love. Now I borrowed that phrase from John Murray who speaks of the unheard of-ness of one dying for the ungodly. And we find it in verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is precisely Paul's point. Among humans, it is scarcely true that one would die even for a righteous man. That is to say, horizontally speaking, righteous. Far less for a wicked person. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Human love may sometimes lead someone to die for someone else. When I preach this text in the past, I've usually referenced a relative of mine, Ernest Preston McWilliams in the First World War, who, um, he was quite a guy. I've read uh, the obituary. Um, when he was in Atlanta before the war, uh, I have this, uh, this story of him ripping the roof off of a house and saving people from a fire and all these sorts of things. Well, evidently he was somewhat of a brash young man and he was aged 30. And uh, when he heard that his buddies had gone to the front line, he, even though he was in the hospital having had a hernia operation, went AWOL from his nurses, went up to the front line and held off the Germans, and at age 30 he was killed. My father is named after him. He thought that his buddies were worth dying for. Well, there may be occasion in which something happens like that rarely on a human level, but God's love is not is not like that. It is so out of proportion to ours, so other than ours, so his own, so absolutely unique that it is infinite, giving, sacrificial, son-giving love. That's the amazing thing. God gave the son of his love in order to die for our sins. Now, I know that the sonship of Christ is an absolutely unique sonship, but if I can use a human analogy for a moment, I love you. I really love you. But I wouldn't give my son for anyone here. Do you understand what I mean? God gave the son of his love. The infinite, eternal second person of the Trinity assumed human nature, went to a cross, and died for your sins, and the Father gave him. I just don't get it. There's simply nothing with which we can compare it. There was a French saint that was dying who said to his daughter, I have loved you because of what you are. My heavenly Father, to whom I go, has loved me malgré moi. I don't remember much of my French, but I do remember that. It means God loved me in spite of me. There's nothing in us to commend God's love. It is unheard of love. You get it? Unheard of. There's nothing like it. And then fifthly, it is also a love that delivers from wrath. Verses 9 and 10 
uh, we, we see this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now, verses 9 and 10 are a fortiori arguments. How much more arguments? If this is true, how much more this? And verses 9 and 10 are logical deductions from what has been taught us in verses 6 through 8. So when we read in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. He is underscoring once again the nature of the death of Christ of which we read in chapter 3, 21 and following that teaches that He is the wrath bearer, the propitiation for our sins, that the Son bore our hell in our place. Our justification takes place through the blood of Christ. Now we are free from the wrath of God and accepted by Christ's sacrifice. But Paul has also been pointing in chapter 5 to our future hope that awaits us. Christ is going to return. And when he does, he will come displaying wrath and judgment on a Christ-denying world. But for the believer, there is no wrath reserved on that day whatsoever. That's his point. The day of judgment is coming. But there is no wrath for the believer. The cross is a more than equivalent to the judgment to come. So that as Haldane said, we suffered all the punishment due to our sins and have kept every precept of the law because he with whom we are one has done so. You will never know wrath because you are in union with the Son of God who bore wrath for you. The love that God has for you is a wrath-delivering love. And then, sixthly, it is a love that reconciles. We have been separated from God because of our sin. And in verse 10, we have again this how much more argument. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies, God was alienated to us because of our sinful rebellion against him. When that was still a reality, we were reconciled to God. Reconciliation has been accomplished once for all in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We shall be saved, therefore, he says, how much more? By his life. And this is not a reference to the life of Christ on this earth. That's an important concept. But that's not the point here. It's, I'm convinced, a reference to the resurrection life of Christ. You remember in chapter 4, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, that's the thought here. Christ took our condemnation and death, but he did not remain under condemnation and death. He rose from the dead bodily. And because of this, we can possess and enjoy a relationship with God. Verse 11, more than that. 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. By the way, in the Greek text, there's a definite article before reconciliation, meaning something like this reconciliation, to which I'm referring, this reconciliation in the cross. We have a relationship with God, and we always will. Do you see? God's integrity demands it. God's character is absolute and unchangeable. God keeps his promises. His son died for me, and this can never fail. No wonder, he says, that we rejoice in God. If it depends on me, what kind of security is that? I fail, I falter, I stumble, but God never does. His love never does. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus never does. And so what he starts, he will finish. But the greatest reality about the love of God is yet to be underscored. I've mentioned it, but I think we need to underscore it. We need to conclude our thoughts about the love of God by saying, seventhly, it's a love in which the Father gave his own son. Please, please think upon it. I want to underscore the obvious because I think it's the most important point of all. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In verse 8, God, meaning the Father, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are reconciled to the Father. It is the love of the Father that is demonstrated to us in the cross. In other words, it is wrong to think that the cross, the cross was required to somehow twist the Father's arm behind his back to make him love us. No, the cross was the Father's plan all along. The cross came from the Father's own loving heart for you. But when we contemplate that God the Father gave his own Son, the second person of the Trinity, who with the Father is worshipped and glorified, between whom there was eternal loving fellowship in one being, who can contemplate this? It is beyond all praising. Why don't we think about this more? Why don't we contemplate it more? Why does this not control my thinking and yours more? God gave his own son in wrath-bearing love. He died for us, and that means all that death means. Not simply that he died physical death, but he bore our hell. The love of God. Well, I'm sure that you see in this text... It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Amazing love. How can it be? We have seen that this love is love for the ungodly, that it is unconstrained, that it is timely, that it is unheard of, that it delivers from wrath, that it reconciles God and man, and most of all, it is a love that incomprehensibly gave his own son. So let me bring these final thoughts to us on this Sabbath evening. Your assurance is based on God's love for you, demonstrated in the cross. 
I'm talking about the foundation of your assurance of acceptance with God. The foundation is always and nothing but what Christ did for us when he shed his blood. The Father's love shown in the cross. And so you will go through this week undoubtedly and from time to time you'll say, look at myself. And the evil one will say, look at yourself. Uh, how messed up you are. You call yourself a Christian. And how do we answer the accusations of our conscience, the accusations of the, of the evil one? Well, you go to this text and you say, yes, I hate sin. Yes, I want to be sanctified. Yes, I want to grow in grace. But the bottom line is, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for godly people. He died for the ungodly. How do you have a good conscience when you look on Christ as your sin bearer and Christ as your righteousness when you, as Luther said, immerse your conscience in the blood of Jesus? And by the way, that's fundamentally what the Protestant Reformation was all about. That's why I love that little story of John Duncan, and call Rabbi Duncan, when he knew the case of that young woman that was not taking the Lord's Supper, and he knew that she should, and he took the elements and he said, take it, woman, it's for sinners. You see, it's for sinners, not for good people. And that's why it's intended to bring great joy. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then, let me say this, God loves you, believer. How do I know? Because of the cross, that proves it. Well then, this is not only the basis of my acceptance with God, but it's also the key to my Christian living. The text is about God's love for us, not our love for God. But surely, when I hear about God's love for me, it should stir up my love for Him and your love for Him. Should it not? Did you notice in 2 Corinthians 5, which we read this morning, we focused on verse 21, but did you notice in the text, the love of God constrains me. The love of Christ constrains me. Someone has actually translates it, translated it, the love of Christ has put me in custody. Love is the master principle of the Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones somewhere said, the people who have appreciated the love of God most have always been those who have realized their sinfulness most. You can say, he loved me and he gave himself for me. He loves me. And therefore, I really do want to love him in return. I remind you of Luke 7, when Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dine at his house and a woman came and washed his feet with her tears Simon was astounded that he allowed a woman to do this, and Jesus spoke a parable about uh, two debtors and showed that those who receive the most forgiveness love much, and those who are conscious of little forgiveness are those who love little. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, said Jesus, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Well, do you see? The woman realized the depth of her sin, how much she was forgiven, and nothing, nothing was too good for Jesus. She was a debtor to mercy alone. Simon was not aware of these things. This woman was. And when Christ entered his home, he did not even give water to wash his feet. He was unaware of the great debt that he owed. 
But now, who here can say this evening, I have only been forgiven a little? You really think that? In light of all that we've studied together in the book of Romans, who, who here can say, I have only been forgiven a little? We had an infinite debt, as was underscored this morning, an infinite debt that we could not pay. I, you, have been forgiven much. We have been loved with an everlasting, eternal love that is demonstrated in the cross. And so nothing is too good for this Jesus.